Welcome to the Lean Solutions Podcast, where we discuss business solutions to help listeners develop and implement action plans for true lean process improvement. I am your host, Patrick Adams. The most dangerous phrase in our language is we've always done it this way. There are an awful lot of posers out there, people that do lean because they're mandated to do it, they think it will work. How stable are you today? What are your goals? Are you generating small, simple improvements? There are very few people that embrace lean with their full heart, head, and emotion. Let's imagine that your current output is top-notch. Is that enough to stop innovating and stop reaching for more? Patrick's book uncovers the essence of what those organizations look like and what the posers look like. Caution, are you in the fake zone or the real zone? Welcome, everybody. Our guest today is Lee Campy. Lee was previously on our show back in episode 56, where we discussed maintaining high standards in Lean and Six Sigma. Lee is the president of Performance Excellence, Inc. and a certified Six Sigma Master Black Belt. Among many other accolades, Lee served our country as a U.S. Army Ranger, and I always love hearing his stories of how he applies the learnings from the military to the work that he does now as a, as a change agent in industry. Uh, welcome to the show, Lee. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be back again. It's not a surprise. Uh, as my mother said, I've, I've got a face for podcasts. So <laughs> here I am. That's always a good one. Yeah, I love it. That's, that's why I do podcasts, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I actually, I almost uh, introduced you as a former Army Ranger, and I'm not, I'm not sure if you guys used the term former or not in the well, Marine Corps. We so never I, when say. I was when I was in Ranger school, uh, starving, yeah. uh, at that time, you got one meal a day and one hour sleep a night and uh, a guy, which I've done these days, I've kind of made a point of trying to go around to the ranger bases and get my, get my picture taken in front of the sign and show my daughters what daddy did. But uh, right. a guy was walking through and I go, were you a ranger? He was a civilian. He was there to, you know, just ch- re- rehashing his memory. And he said, once a ranger, always a ranger. So right. former right. military service member veteran, but yes, you can't take the Ranger tab away. So. No, you cannot. No, that, that's the same thing in the in the Marine Corps. That the uh, that that's exactly what you hear from any any veteran. That's that when you hear the term former, they're like, no, 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 no. Once a Marine, always a Marine. So now you could say formerly had good knees. <laughs> There you go. That's a good one. Yeah. I like that. Well, thank you for your service, Lee. I uh, always love talking to uh, fellow veterans. W- one of the things I want to dive into today, uh, in, back in episode 56 when we were together, we talked a lot about Lean and Six Sigma, and your, we ta- we, we, you gave us a couple case studies and examples of uh, different projects that you've been able to work on and help coach uh, other lean leaders through. Uh, so I thought today we could dive into the topic of problem solving specifically, structured problem solving. And uh, there's many different problem solving approaches that are out there, PDCA, DMAIC, or uh, MDAIC as you, as you teach and, and we talked about in the, in the last episode. Uh, 8D, A3s, right? And, and many times you hear uh, that PDCA and A3 are the same as a Six Sigma approach. What do you think about that? Unfortunately, I find there's some old school lean folks, the Toyota Way, et cetera, and they just refuse to sort of acknowledge that Six Sigma has anything to offer. Mm-hmm. And that's why I actually wrote an article recently on LinkedIn about 
that Six Sigma doesn't fix anything, and I agree with you, and that's because it simply means six standard deviations from the mean. It's that's not, right. it's nothing. It's just a mathematical term. But DMAIC, D-M-A-I-C, absolutely uh, fixes stuff. It's it's a it's a methodology that your doctor uses inherently, your mechanic uses. You don't want a mechanic when you bring your car and say it doesn't start for him to say, well, let's rebuild the engine. <laughs> right. And you know, you go, why you do that? He goes, well, the last car that didn't start, I rebuilt the engine and it started. So, <laughs> you know, you, you want him to go through this process of identifying the root cause of the problem. So I often get from that group, uh, oh, well, you know, A3 is the same thing or, or uh, PDCA does that. And so one of the things I've found is maybe in my disagreement with that is I've, over the years I've learned it has to do more with the training of the black belts. Mm-hmm. So what I've noticed, Kepner Trigo, for example, there's this neat philosophy from the 70s called Kepner Trigo, mm-hmm. which is I'm a huge fan of. They have this neat uh, thing called distinctions and changes where you look for sudden changes in the process to identify a root cause. But what I noticed in the A3s and all those things is I don't see anywhere in the training for hypothesis testing. What I see is a section that says, what's the root cause? And the assumption that just because the person said it's the root cause, it is. Right. And what I see in, again, not all green belts are trained in, you know, sort of mini tab or something like that, but a good black belt program spends time on two sample T-test, ANOVA, regression. You know, just because, you know, someone says that sales are down because we don't smile at people. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you have like some of the retailers here in the U.S., you have a greet the customer process. Right. You know, and now I got to walk in. There's a local gas station here and you walk in and they go, welcome to blank. Welcome to blank. And then when it's really busy, they just go, ah, you know, you just you just hear words. I actually asked the manager one day, I bet you guys are measured on whether or not you greet customers. Hmm. And he said, yeah, we are. And then I told him of one of the retail organizations I work for where I I was able to disprove any correlation between greets and sales. Mm -hmm. So I do, you know, they they all have a section that says root cause. I guess my major segue from that is where is the training to prove that something is a root cause? Right. Um, Now, I, I teach when I teach, there's two ways to prove a root cause. There's trial and error. You can try it. Uh, but in that example, a lot of times, like I always use weight loss as an example, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're 240 pounds on January 9th and you want to be 225. So you join the gym, you buy new shoes, you change your diet, you meal plan, you get it. But which one of the four is the root cause? Mm-hmm. You don't know. So um, that would be the major thing. I think in Demaic, uh, a good training program does put an emphasis on hypothesis testing. Sure. Uh, and, and just because you say it is a root cause doesn't mean it is. Right. Absolutely. So what would you yeah. say uh, would be the, the process that you would go through to to get to root cause when you talk about hypothesis testing? You know, you know, even if we use the use the weight loss example, you know, maybe or another example that you might have. But what would be, you know, maybe high level? What would be the steps that you would go through to get to the root cause? Well, and that's where, before I forget my train of thought, PDCA, I, we use, I say we use in the improved phase of demand. You've come up with a solution. That's your plan. Mm-hmm. You do your pilot. That's the do, right? You check for the results and then the action. And then I bring back in CNA for the control phase. What, as a leader, are you going to continue to check for to make sure your solution has stayed in place? Right. 
now in terms of um you know the way the way i teach uh demaic you know the anal the, the analyze phases where you're gonna you could fishbone diagram you know all the great fun you could have fmea you know we, we love to throw our acronyms around but you could come up with all sorts of uh, uh root causes to a problem um really there's two two ways as i mentioned earlier you have the trial and error approach which might be something you so in that example um, I, I, here's something I did with some supplements that I was taking. I realized one day that I had become my dad. I had like 40 vitamins and minerals that I was taking in the morning. <laughs> and I realized that I bought into a lot of that guilty as charged just from reading an article. And so I did the trial and error approach. I stopped taking all of them and I introduced one at a time mm. for a period of a week to two weeks to see if I had any noticeable impact now the noticeable impact is opinion data it was based on how i felt you know i didn't sure. have any like hard measurements uh, none of that had to do with like a distinct correlation of weight loss or something like that but i actually found uh, a couple supplements that definitely had some improvement uh in sleep and i had a few that i didn't see anything so i was able to save some money so you have the trial and error approach that might be something that a mechanic might take you know your your my my daughter's car this morning she's on her way to midas because the front end is shaking oh, no. and i would hope a good mechanic will say well first let me check the tires you know the right. the leading hypothesis is that you have tire wear that can cause the front end to shake versus i hope he's not just going to call me up oh i threw it up on the machine i want to do a front end alignment right you know because now front end alignment bad tires you got nothing right now on the flip side You've got, you know, a, a major U.S. retailer I work for. Uh, again, one of one of the things I'm known for that students give me feedback for, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn. They'd say, you know, Professor Campy, I love how you tie Lean Six Sigma to my personal life. I get a lot of examples where I continue to use this today in my personal life. Uh, one student messaged me the other day. My wife loves you because I 5 s the garage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm also I'm, I, I'm known for there's an old kids book called encyclopedia brown okay you know we'll get into this when we talk about teams you know do lean six sigma projects need a team well encyclopedia brown he the books were titled you know the case of the missing library book mm. and he didn't need a team he he pulled in people as needed and he asked people questions so uh, this was the case of why does one group of stores make less profit than another mm -hmm. so one group of stores had two percent profitability and another group of stores had three percent on ebitda um, and we as a team, we brainstorm, we fishbone diagram, and this is one of the neatest cases, I think, for your question. Um, somebody identified the rule was that stores could have no more than three, um, no more than two assistant managers. Okay. So we dug into the HR data for number of assistant managers by store. I did a Pareto chart. I want to say 60, I'll just swag it, you know, the great saying 86% of statistics are made up on the spot. but. <laughs> About 60% of stores were compliant. They had two. About 30% of stores had three. Okay. And then there were some stores, four, five, six, seven, which we agreed as a team, all right, that's an operational definition issue. In order to give someone a raise, they probably gave them the title of assistant manager, but they're not really. So we, we threw that out. Okay. So what's the knee-jerk reaction when you find out that 30% of your stores have one extra assistant manager? Knee-jerk would be uh, get rid of them, get rid of the... Yeah, because the, the project was about profitability. Right, right. Well, fortunately, in this case, we pulled someone in who was a, a, who was a manager of a stores, uh, had become a VP, and he said, well, now, wait a second, maybe those stores are run better. Mm. 
maybe we need three assistant managers. So this was a classic uh, hypothesis test example. Sure. Uh, and it turns out when you dug into the data and you got the stores that had three assistant managers versus the stores that had two, and you did a two sample T test and a moods median, the stores with three outperformed on profit, the stores with two. Hmm. Now we know correlation doesn't mean causation. So in order to present to, this is a major U S retailer. So we're presenting to the board. We dug into the data sure. and it turned out when you factor for training hours, office meetings and things like that, a store with only two assistant managers had 40 hours a week where there was no manager present. Hmm. We kind of took lean the eighth form of waste, you know, um, you know, if your cashier isn't at the cash register, it's non-value added. Well, we said if the store has no manager, it's non-value added. And we were able to show management 40 hours a week. There was no manager there. And the it was it probably never able to kind of prove this with data. But the assumption is with no manager in the store, it was a free for all. Right. And that third extra manager was able to manage those costs. So that was an example of mm. digging into the data using hypothesis testing to prove or disprove a hypothesis versus just trying something. Right. Oh, that's amazing. Such a such a good example. And, and I think that sometimes uh, you, you, you find that there is, you know, one root cause and sometimes there's multiple root causes. Uh, but the only way to really know which one is having the greatest impact is by letting the data determine the answer to that, right? Versus feeling. Yeah, well, that's that's where you get the great hypothesis test, the design of experiments. You know, so many, even in manufacturing today, they'll rely on the experience of the engineers and change. They'll turn five knobs on a machine mm -hmm. and say, look, we did it. Right. But, but what, maybe one of the knobs didn't need to be turned. Right. And, and then next time that you have the same problem, you have no idea what to do. You're going to try to turn five knobs again and no, not know which one is actually having an impact. I'll give you a fun story. I have a client that makes uh, machines for the paper industry. We were doing a project. Uh, they have to basically take a roll out of the paper machine and grind the coating off and put a new coating on. Every type of paper has its own coating. Okay. Well, I know more about industries I've never worked in uh, just from doing this career. <laughs> oh, that's what's years. fun about what it. we do. Yeah, I work in a poultry plant one day, a paper company the next, a bank. Um, but we were following the process because this one area took longer. And so the guy, he sets the machine up and then all of a sudden he pulls out a calculator. No, what? Nobody else is doing this. He's, he's punching in numbers in a calculator. He's writing something down. Then he adjusts the machine. Like everyone else just adjusts the machine. What are you doing? Oh, well, I have to take this piece of paper. I have to enter these numbers. I have to get this number. And then I type it in. We didn't know what he didn't know why he was doing that. Mm -hmm. This is a great, you know, people are taught to do whatever the last guy told them to do. That's right. We called a guy that had retired and he said, oh, we did that because there's a piece of equipment in the machine that bent 14 years ago and in order to we couldn't get the part. So in order to compensate for the part, I developed an algorithm. Oh, wow. This this thing held up like, let's just say $10,000 a year in interest revenue from grinding machines. And it was a $900 a part. We were able to get the part FedExed in the next day and throw amazing. the whole process away. So oh, that's amazing. But you know, as a late, you know, as a, as a continuous improvement person, there's so much value and that's going to the Gimba. You know, that's, that's right. just a great example of, Hey, this is so odd. What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I have a, a, another example that goes right along with that one uh, with an organization that we were working with. We had, uh, and, and this goes along with uh, why it's so important to talk to everyone that's involved in the process, not just first shift, 
but also talking to second shift and third shift if if that you know if there are uh multiple shifts but we had uh first shift was th there was a machine that they were uh similarly they were um packaging parts and i think it was uh there was a box maker and a wrapper in, inside of this one piece of equipment and the uh first shift operator ha was having problems with ramp up after they would change over and he just could not get his ramp up you know within the time frame that it needed to be and definitely not anywhere close to third shift third shift was just blowing it out of the water and uh, uh, but we wouldn't have known that unless we collected the data, which they didn't have at the time. So we collected the data on, on ramp up times and looked at each shift and then we're like, whoa, wait a minute here. You know, why is third shift doing so well and first shift, you know, can't can't hit the mark. Uh, so we and in this machine, when they did a changeover, they had multiple dials that they had to, you know, they, they basically would get a. a some standard work that would give them, you know, okay, change it to this dial to this number, this dial to this number, this dial to this number, push start, and you should have a good product, right? So we went to third shift and we're like, hey, why are your ramp up times so good? Like, what are you doing? And we watched him do a changeover. And what we saw was that every time he would look at his, uh, his standard document for, for what to, the dial should read, he would say, okay, this one needs to be eight and he would start turning the dial and he would always go 20 clicks past the number and then come back to it. Huh. And he didn't say anything about it. We were just watching this at the Gemba. Go to the next one, he'd go 20 clicks past, come back, 20 clicks past on every dial. And this was something that obviously we, when we observed first shift, he was not doing that. So we saw the difference. And uh, we asked him, why do you go 20 clicks past and then come back? Well, he's like, well, the machine has a ton of slop in it. He's like, if you don't go 20 clicks past, if you just go to the number, the slop is, it causes you to, to be completely out of range. So you have to go 20 clicks past and then come back. So again, a very simple example, but just by going to the Gemba and observing what yeah. was happening and asking the right questions, we were able to then, you know, communicate that back to first shift. And well, and, and you just made a great case for doing the measure phase first, right? You ah, said because yeah, we had point. the data. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can't, you know, you can't do anything without that data. Yeah, that's 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 so. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, it, it was. Now, was that the then solution to first shift? Is hey, everyone needs to go twenty clicks and come back? No, no, no. Or do we you later do a project to reduce the slot. Exactly. Yeah. No, that that yeah. was a, a temporary fix that that we put in place right away to you know get everybody to within the ramp up times. But then obviously, yes, we we obviously knew there was a deeper problem, a deeper root cause, right, that needed to be fixed within the equipment. And that, well, and then to go back to our early conversation, that's a great example of two ways to do a hypothesis test, right? You got hypothesis number one: everyone do the twenty clicks in the short term, so we can get that equality across. Uh, and that's, you know, because that's another thing companies do is they try to do the detailed hypothesis testing on a process that's out of control. Right. Right. You know, and you you just if Doesn't you're yo-yo dieting and your weight's all over the place, you've, you've got to stabilize that first. That's right. You can't you can't improve chaos. No way. And by the way, for all the manufacturing's listing, manufacturers listening, um, one of the things I and you'll probably agree with this. One of the things I've always asked my clients I, I, is set back and just set back and watch a shift change. Hmm. And immediately when second shift or third shift comes in, they'll start turning knobs. Right. Oh, absolutely. And I'm like, well, now hold on a second. I thought second shift had this under control by the end of the shift. Why would you even touch a knob? Mm -hmm. And so I actually had a client buy into this. He got on a shift change. He told all the operators, I want you to simply stand back from the machine. And if you feel like you have to change something, raise your hand. And I want to come over and ask you what it is you're going to change and mm -hmm. why. I love that. And he, 
yeah, he found some, well, I got to change it because Bob didn't quite, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he found some cases where the operator was right, and he found some cases where they were wrong. So mm -hmm. it really led to some real good consistency in the process. Oh, I love that. That's a that's a great idea. And just, just some really good conversation, I'm sure, but, you know, between the leader and the, the uh, machine operators. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Lee, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier. You, t you mentioned the eighth waste, uh, non-utilization of talent. What do you think is the best way to identify that that form of waste when you're when you're well and it's just a i mean it, it this is where maybe sometimes we can be a little too you know politically correct in the sense of terminology and stuff like that but it, you know oh i don't want to say that my employees are are waste or well that's not what we're saying mm -hmm. but what i do is just say listen what did you hire the person to do at its simplest form? And I just use the example of a nurse every time. A nurse should always be where, and all my patients will tell you, with a patient. I mean, all my mm. clients will tell you that they should be with a patient. Right. And so then you can just stand there with a piece of paper and a tick sheet and just anytime a nurse is not with a patient, what is he or she doing? Right. And this was a, it led to a great project for one of my healthcare clients. Well, uh, she and 90% of U.S. nurses are, are women. She is outside. Uh, I like to use the Georgia joke with Meemaw waiting on Peepaw to pick her up. <laughs> and so and then you go, OK, you have a $60 an hour resource with benefits fully loaded standing in a parking lot waiting for someone to come pick up somebody. Mm. Is that what you hired that person to do? Right. And so and that that's really I found very useful for clients. A surgeon should always be performing surgery, mm -hmm. right? And then you, if they're not, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. And then you step back from that, you do your little tick mark. And certainly there's going to be some things that we, uh, we say, well, I know he's not in surgery, but I do want him over here washing his hands. Okay, right. that's fine. Uh, but led to some in the healthcare field, it's led to some reduction in paperwork because where's the nurse? She's at the nurse's station. Um, or in the case of one of my clients, the nurse is looking for drugs because the bin that had the pills in it hadn't been restocked, mm. which then led to a pharmacy project on the cycle time that it took to restock uh, the pharmacy bin. Right. So, you know, a, U a UPS driver is should be either in a truck or walking a package to the front door. Anytime they're not, it's non-value added. So, mm -hmm. um, it's, it, again, the person is always value added, but you've got them doing something you didn't pay them to do. That's right. Absolutely. And now on the flip side, that also helps you identify, I need that step done, but does it have to be done at $65 an hour? Mm -hmm. And in the earlier example, my client ended up high. And this is where you get to one of the things I teach in the improve phase is a technique called challenge the rules and get rid of excuses. So challenge the rules, and you'll know this is, oh, well, OSHA requires that. <laughs> uh, well, HIPAA requires that. You know, it's like the guy's got a nine point harness in a three-hour process to climb a ladder to change the light bulb. Right. OSHA does not require that. OSHA says he has to be secured from falling above a certain height. Mm -hmm. You're the one that came up with this ridiculous process. Right. Uh, and so in the one example, oh, oh, a, a registered nurse has to be the one to take the patient outside. Mm. And whenever someone throws a reg at me, I say, show me the reg. Like, I don't want what your hospital wrote. I want the one from the government. Right. And it's not in there. It just mm -hmm. says qualified medical care. That's right. And so we were able to outsource that to a third party at mm -hmm. $15 an hour who now takes the patients outside 
and keeps the nurse at the patient bedside. Now you get into cost benefit. Oh, but I've added a $15 labor resource. No, what you've done is you've, another project we worked on, you've increased bed availability because mm -hmm. now you can turn the beds faster so that people aren't waiting in the ER to get up to a, to a bed. So it all sort of ripples together, but it all starts from identifying what am I paying this person to do versus what they're actually doing. That's right. Oh, I love that. Great, great examples. I, I love the examples. And, and also just because we have listeners, you know, from all over the world that are in all different industries too. So the fact that you're giving examples from the healthcare industry, from manufacturing, from, you know, it, it, all these different uh, large uh, box stores and, and things like that. It, yeah. it definitely and personal helps. life. And that's why and I really try yeah. to beat that negative stereotype that Six Sigma's lead Six Sigma's only for manufacturing. Right. You know, I, I take two approaches to that. Well, we're all manufacturers. If you do something more than once, you're a manufacturer. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, hospitals manufacture, hopefully, a healthy patient. Right. Uh, and then, of course, we can measure we can measure success with the readmission rate. That's one of the hugest, biggest metrics in healthcare right now is the readmission rate. Right. Absolutely. Um, let's go back to projects, Lee. So uh, let's talk specifically, let's dive into projects. So one of the things that we were talking about before we hit record was uh, when to actually kick off a uh a formal project, I guess, and I say that in quotations, a formal project versus, you know, just doing a, 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 a PDCA cycle and, and learning something and putting solutions in place on a challenge. And, and I gave the example of, uh, you know, one organization that I worked with where an individual came up to me and he said, look, I have a scuff on a bottle that's coming down a, a, a line. And, uh, and he said, do we got to pull a team together and work on this, you know, as a team and try to figure out why the scuff is on the bottle? And, and so I asked him, well, how many, how many bottles have you found like that? And he said, well, this is the first one. And so I was like, well, no, of course not. You know, think through, go through the PDCA cycles in your mind and what can you do to try to, you know, make sure that that problem doesn't, doesn't come back again. And he, you know, as he was thinking, he said, well, I could adjust the rails. And so he went and adjusted the rails and the problem went away, right? So uh, now another example was where uh, the, the scuffs on the bottles, you know, became a, a higher severity, higher occurring problem that was occurring regularly. And, and they, they kept having the issue, no matter how many times they adjusted the rails or how many times they approached it, it you know, did different things to, you know, change the bottle size or whatever it was, um, they kept getting these scuffs and they kept getting worse and they didn't want them to get to the customer. So at that point, you know, was it time to pull in some other people, right? And so I want, I guess I say all that because I want to put that question back on you. When do you, you know, when do you pull a team together and, and at what, what, what does that mean to actually pull a team together? Yeah. And then to tie back to our early conversation of hypothesis testing, the statistician in me might've said to that guy, well, that bottle could be an outlier. Right. Maybe you don't need to do anything. Maybe right. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Just a ran, just some Good random point. special cause very Here's a guy upstream scratching labels off because he's mad at his yeah. job. You know, I, I said uh, one let's bottle. Wait. I think the, in the in the actual example, oh, I'm sure I think it was. It was, yeah. it was a few bottles, but yeah, yeah. Minimal yeah just like, but, you know, if a guy comes with one, I'm like, well, you know, wait it out. Let's see. Right. It's just random. Yes. But um, I so, you know, I started at GE in the in the 90s, you know, early when it was just Six Sigma. And, oh, you had to have a charter and you had to have a team. And, you know, that myth has still permeated the industry uh, with a lot of, I just find a lot of people are teaching Six Sigma still from the 90s. 
you know, the minute I see that Lean Six Sigma's process improvement and, oh, you've got to do a process map in the measure phase, I go, all right, they're in the 90s. Mm-hmm. That's what we were talking about in the 90s. Why would I map out a process if my problem is 8% employee absenteeism? Mm-hmm. Like, what am I even going to map? So I've also gotten away from this, this form. You have to have a formal, like, someone needs to say, yes, you can work on that, right? Someone mm-hmm. has to say to an employee, I will give you the time to work on that. So I do agree, but does it have to be this document with five signatures, right? Right. Now that could depend, you know, a local plant level machine operator versus someone who's got to travel around the U.S. to four four of our sites and work on something. Um, But I'll give an example. I was a vice president of Lean Six Sigma at a bank in HR, uh, and they had whoever had brought the program to them had done all this formality. So there was a black belt working with another MBB that, to be honest, I don't think was really an MBB. And I knew this because when she did her kickoff meeting for her project, there were 40 people in the room. Wow. It, I was like, is she doing a class? Is she doing a, a lecture? Oh, no, this is her team. She's getting them together. Well, my black belt, because they had already been trained when I got hired, my black belt that was reporting to me came to me and said, I, here's my list of like 30 people. I go, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You can have five. Mm-hmm. And then you can pull in others as needed. She was done with her project in about two months. Mm-hmm. The one that had 40 people on the team, I think, was still in the define phase. Mm-hmm. So today I teach, and, and my students will tell you this, I tell them, and this is back to the Encyclopedia Brown example, you are a detective for corporate America. It's been very difficult sitting on an airplane when someone says to me, what do you do? <laughs> I go, uh, well, I teach business people how to be more like a doctor and not jump to solutions. Uh, And then a lot of times I say, well, I'm a detective for corporate America Mm -hmm. and it's not a a body on the floor. It's the case of 8% EBITDA when we thought it would be 15. Mm -hmm. And so I think you play detective. And if you watch 48 hours, which is a, a, that's a neat statistical example where they say, if you can't solve a crime in 48 hours, the probability of solving it drops dramatically. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you watch all these detective shows, the detective goes out, he assesses the crime scene. That's the measure phase. And in that example, he pulls in some additional resources, right? Sure. We've got this group that comes in. So I'm a big believer in you pull in resources as needed. Wait a minute. And you, to, he, you mean he doesn't he doesn't try to solve the 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 uh, case from his desk? Yeah, he goes exactly. To the crime oh, scene? he goes to the Gimba. Oh, yeah, I forgot that part. <laughs> but he also doesn't call in, you know, four duty patrolmen and, and CSI you know, with their advanced uh, statistics that don't exist uh, sure. from television, you know, the detective, because there could be someone waving their hands going, I did it. I didn't like that, you know, yeah. and the problem is solved. So I have, I have just really, and, and what I'm seeing, to be honest, is my clients now can solve project 30 to 60 days. Mm. And when, and, and listen, I, I came from the old team-based approach. It used to take six to six months. We used to tell people four to six months to do a project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've completely gotten away from the team. You are a detective. Um, you do need a good leader to, to be there because that person might need to help you get someone from finance right. to, to give Remove you numbers. See, like, Whatever. yeah, my average green belt doesn't know how to calculate cost benefit analysis at a detailed level. Um, but, but, you know, I don't need a finance person on my team right now until maybe I get to the improve phase and they can help me run some cost benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, 
So, and I'm a, I can be snarky on LinkedIn. I agree with that. Uh, so I, you know, occasionally I'll see the picture of someone, look at us in a conference room. There's 20 of us and we just did a value stream map in four days. Mm -hmm. And I'll post, yeah, but I could have done that value stream map in a half a day. I, I did the, I did the value stream map of a major U.S. corporation's accounts payable process in a day. Hmm. And identified all the waste. Uh, by the way, we found like a million dollars a year just in FedEx costs. They were getting invoices in. They were handwriting issues with the invoice and FedExing them back to the plant. Wow. The plant was taking 120 days to get the invoices back, which at this point they've missed their discount. Right. They've already missed the net 45. And you know what's happened. The vendors already sent another invoice. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Now, but so I want to back up, though. I don't want to be too elitist in the sense that there is a case for getting 20 people in a room and doing a value stream map if sure. your objective is to train others. Sure, sure. So that's where I distinguish between the need for a team versus not. Do you want your project to also be a training program? Mm -hmm. Then you might go ahead and add in a little of that, you know, like two day value stream mapping in a conference room. Or are you more of the military mindset? I need to accomplish this objective. We need profit to go up. Then you probably shouldn't be getting a team together right now. You should probably play detective and, and let the data take you to where you need to be. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Um, and, and, you know, and, and that makes a lot of sense, especially for, again, people that are listening in that probably the majority, uh, you know, were brought up in organizations where that is the case. So I think that's very helpful to think about, um, you know, even even as as the world changes, as technology changes, as, you know, um, organizations change, we have to be willing to be flexible. And, you know, so again, people that are listening that go, well, that's not the way that I do it. I would, I would challenge you just think about, you know, I do every day when I talk to people like Lee, you know, I think about, okay, well, that's not exactly the way that I do it, but you know what, I can see where that would have been beneficial in this circumstance, or, you know, let me, let me experiment with that and try that and see how that goes and, and see the, the benefits of it myself. Um, so again, I would, I would just to, you know, challenge people to really uh, think about the way that you approach improvement in your organization. And are there things that you can apply directly, you know, to to um, how you approach problems specifically um, or your, you know, lean or continuous improvement journey in, in general? So with that said, I want to I want to um, get a little bit more general with you, Lee, and I want to I want to back out a little bit and I want to think about you know, organizations that do decide to adopt lean or continuous improvement as, as a, a methodology, many of them fail, many of them struggle. Uh, what would be your advice or, or your thought on, on why do organizations tend to struggle with, uh, you know, continuous improvement methodology within their organization? Yeah, oh, and, and change in general. Uh, this is where uh, one of the blessings, I guess, in working with GE is we had a wonderful change methodology called the change acceleration process, which was tools for change, not theory. Oh, change is important, but very specific tools that you could use. And I, I still today train It's about two days of training on people with that. But um, number one, I would say is all the way back to our conversation of hypothesis testing. Someone brought this into the organization because they thought it would fix something. Mm -hmm. So they themselves, oh, um, sales are down. Let's do Lean Six Sigma. Right. Or we have a lot of scrap in the plant. I'm going to start a continuous improvement program. Um, well, certainly other companies have proven that that's a good hypothesis. But what did they do to make it successful that you're not doing? You know, we just found just on a high level, uh, former CEOs of GE companies, GE back in the day when it was really successful, 
their success once they left GE was very low. And we found in doing some research around it, it was culture. They, they could, they were not successful in their new company. Like Bob Nardelli, when he went to Home Depot, he really struggled because Home Depot did not have the same culture as GE. Right. GE was very, you know, you make decisions. You know, we didn't have a lot of meetings at GE. You made decisions. So, but I would say in my experience, uh, you know, we spent millions of dollars at GE uh, studying why change failed. And one of the things we found was a failure to mobilize commitment. Hmm. But here's the key that exceeded the resistance to the change. And that's what people seem to forget. People don't like change. Right. And there's this arrogance that I'm just going to bring something in. Not arrogance. There's also just an innocence or a naivety or naivete. I don't, you know, I don't know what language <laughs> to speak, but there's this failure to realize people don't like change. I, when I, when I guess speak, sometimes I'll ask two people just to switch chairs. Hmm. What, you know, well, I am Lee can't be welcome. Hey, would you two mind switching? Oh, just the pause and the looking around. And it's, it, and I go, you probably don't want to switch chairs, do you? You're comfortable. And I need to create a reason why you need to switch chairs that, that exceeds your resistance to it. Mm. Right. So that's number one. We think change is easy. We think it's going to be accepted. People don't like change. So number two, what we fail to do then is we fail to tell the people impacted by the change the bare minimum that they need to do for the change to be successful. You know, we give them flyers and bulletin boards. How about this? Listen, I'm implementing 5S. I know you don't like the idea of having to stick a tool on a shadow board mm -hmm. at the end of each day. That, but that's all I need you to do right now. Could you just take this tool and stick it on that shadow board. And here's the key. And let them do it grudgingly. Let them mumble under their breath. Don't, hey, what are you, what are you saying over there? You know, just let them do it. And then here comes the next part. You've got to reward them for it. Okay. Now, reward doesn't have to be monetary. You know, one of the things we know in psychology is people love attention. Hmm. So it could simply be, hey, everybody gather around before we leave today. Bob over here has been knocking this out. He's been sticking this thing on the shadow board all week. And we're just going to give a certificate of excellence in shadow boarding, you know, but the fact he's up there or she's up there and everyone sees them. And, you know, so I, that's the big thing. People don't like change. You expect there to be no resistance. If you do that, the resistance goes underground. Mm -hmm. I actually put up a flip chart paper when I do some things and tell me, why don't you like this yep. change? And I you can just write on a post it. No, yeah, stick it up. We don't have to see it. Right. Uh, and then come up with ways to counter that narrative. Or as you know, many times they're right. Right. Uh, well, it, you put the five S you put the shadow board in the wrong location. I have to do 57 steps to go over there. Uh, you know, I love my client Yamaha. Uh, they actually do projects. One of our projects was, and I won't give away their date. I'll just make up a number that currently it takes 60 steps for an operator to complete a task, reduce it to 20. You know, and by the way, you don't need a team for that. Would you agree? You right. Just, you just follow the person around all day and go, where on earth are they going? So people don't like change. Go ahead and let them be, let them grumble. Listen to what they're talking about. Tell them the bare minimum they need to be successful. Hey, try this with your kids. You know, you don't, this is where executives need to stop with these lofty vision statements that people, uh, one of my favorite clients is he said, um, this year, everyone, I, I walked in and my client, my students know me. I was doing training in January and my class from like November was there. And I walked into the lobby and there was 
there was signs, there was cupcakes with a letter A on them. It was really cool. I knew HR was involved. Once you see a party, HR is involved. And one of my students ran over. He goes, oh, you're going to love this, Lee. And I go, what's up? Look on the look over there at the banner. Bring your A game. So the CEO had said, this year, I want everyone to bring their A game. And I go, well, this isn't going to do anything. And he goes, I know. Remember what you talked about in class? I go, yeah. No one knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Or... People think they're already bringing their A game. So how I do this, I tell executives, go home and tell your family what you're telling your employees because your family will call you out. Right. So one of my students did it. He went home that night. He just randomly, just do it just like the employees, just randomly show up and say, everyone gather around. So he called the wife and the kids. He goes, for the rest of the year as a family, we're going to bring our A game. And then he walked away because that's what I told him to and later, Daddy, what are you talking about? What, what do you mean bring your A game? So that's another way, area we drop the ball. We sort of say, you know, uh, customer focused. Uh, my favorite is think safety. Well, then I use that earlier example. Then no one should be working because they should all be taking the position of the thinking man and thinking safety. Hmm. Hey, Bob, why aren't you grinding right now? I'm sorry. I'm thinking safety. I can't. I can't do that task. Right. So you also... What in that example, you also have to, again, here's my example of the bare minimum. This year at my company, we're going to bring our A game. That's fine. The executives close to you probably know what you're talking about. Sure. But now make a poster for the rest that says, and what that means is you're going to be on time for meetings this year. That's right. If you're not, if you can't be on time, you're going to let someone know at least 15 minutes prior. Right. And give these very behavioral. And then what did we say? You got to start rewarding them for it. Wow. This person has been on time for every meeting this quarter since we started this initiative. We need to honor that. That's right. Oh, I love that. Love that. I love the examples. Uh, you know, having how does behavior or you know what are the actions that are going to give you the results? You know, the, the the CEO is is saying, okay, this is the result that I want. I want you to bring your A game. But what does that actually take? And breaking that down so that yeah, it's not measurable. Coming. Right. Yeah. So and, and you want people to know how their work rolls into that very easily. You know, and, I, and, and again, I, I'm actually going to take your example. I'm going to think about something. Actually, I'm, I might uh, take something that I say to my team today and I'm going to I'm going to bring that to my family this weekend. And I'm going to I'm going to let you know what comes out of that. I you just got to drop it on them. Like, don't right. set it up. Just no, no, no. Well, I had a I had a client one time. CEO said double is doable. So the guy went home to the family. Double is doable. I just walked away. What? The, yeah. what double what? <laughs> double the grocery list. Double chili. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Oh, I love it. Well, uh, the family example I use is what that means is the grass will be cut every Saturday by noon. Uh, we will be on time to church on Sunday. We won't sneak in when the music is playing. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, the kitchen will be clean. And I'm not saying the wife has to do it. The husband can have to do it, whatever. But the kitchen will be cleaned every night before we go to bed. And clean is defined as, hey, at least every but here, bear, at least everything's in dishwasher. You right. don't even have to run the dishwasher, but at least everything's in there ready to go for, you know, the morning or something. Like Absolutely. That. Oh, I love it. Lee, Lee, this has been great. Uh, I think we could, could we could talk all day, and I'm definitely I definitely oh, want to sure. have you back again for a, a third episode. Uh, we'll we'll continue having these conversations. Uh, I, this is this is why I love love podcasting so much because I actually started this back when uh, when COVID hit, 
And I just grabbed a couple people that I was already having these kinds of conversations with. And I was like, hey, we should re we should start recording these conversations. Yeah, you're doing a good job. I like the technology and it, the the, uh, the output looks great. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, we've we've done a lot since since those first days. But, you know, I, I, I guess I just say that because just a conversation with you, Lee, just it just gets me so excited and energized to go out and do something. And, you know, again, I, I just hope that people that are listening are getting the same energy you know, that, that I'm feeling, you know, from you. And I just appreciate what you do and, and what you're doing with your clients and, and organizations. If anybody wants to reach out to you, uh, you know, if they want to pull you in or they have questions or whatever it might be, how would they get a hold of you? What's the best way for them to reach Real out? Real simple. My last name is spelled, I'll do the military way, Charlie Alpha Mike Papa Echo. So it's LeeCampy.com, L-E-E-C-A-M-P-E.com. You can email me, Lee at LeeCampy.com. More than welcome to add me on LinkedIn. I, I get on there occasionally and um, I have a YouTube channel under my name but with, which has a lot of the training videos I do in fact there's a whole section on hypothesis testing however don't nice. leave the E off because apparently right. there's quite a popular comedian named Lee Camp <laughs> that's funny there's also an actor named Patrick Adams so I have the same issue people oh people no search yeah, my name and they're like, are, are you an actor no 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 <laughs> yes I act like a continuous improvement expert <laughs> right I do exactly. a good job at it <laughs> right well we will we will drop those links into the show notes so if anybody wants to reach out to Lee you can go right to the show notes and and find his link there to, to head out to his page otherwise like you said LinkedIn is another great place to get a hold of him Lee it's been great to have you on the show again for the second time. Uh, if those of you that are listening in, if you loved what you heard today, go back to episode 56, uh, where Lee and I discussed maintaining high standards in Lean and Six Sigma. He gave us some great examples of case studies, other case studies that he's worked on that have uh, had some you know, really amazing uh, benefits. So uh, Lee, again, thank you. Appreciate you. Uh, excited to have you on again another time. Thanks for being here. All right, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Lean Solutions Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe. This way you'll get updates as new episodes become available. If you feel so inclined, please give us a review. Thank you so much.